Isaiah chapter 65. It's been a couple of weeks, um, but we're going to go back and look at this latter half of the chapter. I'll remind you where we left off, and then we'll, we'll kind of go back and uh, uh, pick up where we left off. Obviously, I was gone a couple of weeks. Uh, thanks for your prayers, etc. We were We had a great vacation uh, over on the coast in, in Oregon. Uh, we were able to check off all of our uh, bucket list. It was kind of fun. Uh, so the, and the kids had a great time, and it was a blessing. So thank you so much for, for your prayers there. Thank you for Joe covering the Sunday school class for me for a couple of weeks, and Daniel and uh, Dave and Gordy and others that pitched in while I was gone covering the various uh, ministries. So thank you so much for that. But in Isaiah chapter 65, we're down to the wire. Like I said, we've got probably just a couple of weeks left, a couple, three, we'll see, uh, before we finish our examination of the book of Isaiah. Recall with me, as we look at uh, this portion this morning, the latter half of chapter 65, remember the context. Several weeks back, we looked at Isaiah chapter 63 and 4, which is the, pro- the, the immediate uh, context of the, of the prophecy that leads up to these final two chapters. And recall that those chapters began in chapter 63, verses 1 to 6, it began with a prophecy of Yahweh coming in judgment. And that's uh, essentially the Old Testament equivalent, well, one of many Old Testament places, but it's a prediction of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can see that through numerous New Testament parallels. But that prophecy of the second coming is then followed by a prayer of Isaiah. So Isaiah prays from chapter 63, verse 7, all the way to the end of chapter 64, and he prays for Yahweh to come. In other words, he's asking God to do what he just promised he would do, to come, to judge the earth, uh, to purge the earth of its, of its wickedness and evil, to bring in uh, the perfect kingdom. And so what we'll see then is chapters 65 and 6, the final two chapters of the book of Isaiah, are essentially God's response to Isaiah where he, he responds to Isaiah's prayer by giving us these final two chapters of the book, the final prophecy of the book. And so uh, Martin, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks back, but just by way of review, Alfred Martin notes that in several ways, the Lord's response to the remnant's prayer, Isaiah's prayer, uh, that you know this response contained in the final two chapters, serves as a summary. It, it, they really are strategic to sum up the message of the entire book of Isaiah. All the major themes that were present throughout the book are here reiterated. And so chapter 65, which is what we began our examination a couple weeks ago, and we're going to hopefully conclude here this morning, subdivides into three major parts. At least this is how we subdivided it. First seven verses of the chapter is Yahweh vindicating his judgment. In other words, he is explaining why he had to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel. That explanation has been given several times, in fact, throughout the book of Isaiah, but it is one more time reiterated here. But then he goes on to describe how he will preserve a remnant. That's verses 7 to 16, that though he must level judgment to purge the wickedness and evil from uh, the nation of Israel, he will nonetheless preserve a remnant who will, third part of the chapter, which is really makes up the latter half, is Yahweh promises to establish a kingdom, an eternal kingdom that they will be able to enter into and participate in. And so last time, if you're with us, and it was a couple of weeks back, but we got to that point where we were introducing the kingdom and we uh, we were running out of time and, and, and uh, so we weren't able to get into that latter half, but we ended last time with an examination of Matthew chapter 7, where at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a series of teachings wherein he, he essentially 
poses himself. He, he puts himself up as a judge of the universe, the one who will be the one who grants or denies entrance into this eternal kingdom. And of course, that was an extremely important claim that Jesus made during his life and ministry. But it is here uh, helpful for us to, to correlate that. In other words, entrance into the kingdom, part, being part of the remnant that is preserved through the judgment of God that will fall upon the earth when Jesus comes in his second coming. To be part of the remnant, to enter the kingdom, it is all based upon our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus claims in the New Testament. And so... But our focus today is going to be verses 17 to 25, where Yahweh promises his kingdom. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's reread that section, and then we'll examine it for the rest of the hour, all right? Isaiah 65, 17 says this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. The former shall not be remembered nor come into mind, but be you glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die a hundred years old, but the sinner being a hundred years old shall be accursed. They, that, uh, verse 21, and they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build in another inhabit, they shall not plant in another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people and mine elect, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together, the lion shall eat straw like the bullock, and the dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Pause there. Now, uh, as we jump into this latter uh, portion of the chapter, we're going to begin by just identifying the kingdom, what is here being discussed, and then we'll, we'll look at uh, what Isaiah does in describing the kingdom. We'll look at a number of, of descriptions and, and new information that he gives us regarding this kingdom that God promises to set up. Now, Identifying the kingdom, just uh, we, we in fact talked about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but I'm just going to recap it briefly so that we're all on the same page and then we'll jump into the details. But the need for a new heavens and a new earth was already suggested by earlier comments in the book of Isaiah. For instance, in Isaiah 51.6, he describes the heavens vanishing, the earth growing old like a garment. In other words, he already predicted the fact that this heaven and earth will pass away. That reality uh, was also foreshadowed by the coming kingdom of righteousness that has been described in other parts of the book of Isaiah. And this is not an exhaustive list, but two perhaps best representations of that in the book of Isaiah would be Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 24. And so the reality that God will bring in a kingdom where he will rule and bring perfect peace and prosperity to the earth, that has been the big theme of Isaiah. Isaiah's mentioned it multiple times. So that reference here is not new information that there will be a kingdom. Rather, the nature of it, the details of what it will be like is here expanded upon in this chapter. Now again, these details of these verses must describe what you and I have come to call the millennial kingdom. Why? Well, as, as we work our way through verse 20, I, I, uh, as I read through, perhaps you noticed, but verse 20 describes the presence of death. People are still dying in that kingdom. And so it's a, but it is here described as the new heavens and the new earth. 
Now, when we get to the book of Revelation, we get more detail regarding this. In the book of Revelation, the new heavens, the new earth doesn't occur till Revelation 21.1. And that follows the millennial kingdom in Revelation 20 and verse 4. So most likely what Isaiah is doing here is he didn't distinguish between these two aspects of God's rule. Rather, he saw them together as one. The millennium is merely the first stage of the eternal state. When we take Isaiah 65 and sync it with Revelation 20 to 22, then that's what we discover. And so what we're here looking at is, again, what you and I would call in New Testament lingo, the millennial kingdom. And so what is the millennial kingdom going to be like? Well, it occurs after the second coming, right? That's Revelation 19. Jesus descends right on that white charger. He destroys his enemies. He sets up thrones, Revelation 20, and he begins to rule and reign on the earth. Now, that concept is what's here being described, but Revelation 20 just tells us, hey, that's what's happening, and then it kind of keeps moving on. Why? Well, because the details of what that kingdom looks like has already been given to us in the pages of the Old Testament. And here is one of the more conspicuous places in the Old Testament that describes the kingdom. So let's look at that. How does Isaiah describe the kingdom that is uh, going to occur at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, as we look our, our way through this passage, there's a number of things I want to highlight. And it helps us, again, visualize what this kingdom will be like. Now, during the millennium, according to our passage, Jerusalem will be a place of joy because sorrow will vanish away. Look again at verse 18 and 19. He says, be glad and rejoice, verse 18, forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. In other words, first promise is that God will bring total joy to the nation of Israel, the city of Jerusalem. Now, we could stop and uh, take a rabbit trail here and talk about the 20-some-odd times the city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and rebuilt, uh, the multiple times the nation has uh, undergone exile and return, and the nation of Israel has a long history of uh, sorrow. And, and struggle and defeat. Why? Well, remember this a couple weeks ago, but the beginning of the chapter describes why God has to bring that sort of judgment upon his people because of their sinfulness and his, his desire to purge the nation, to bring them to the place where they are the, the nation that he has destined them in, uh, to be. But this passage is telling us there is an end coming to that. There's an end coming to the suffering of the people of God. Rather, he will bring Jerusalem to be a place of rejoicing where there will no longer be the voice of weeping. Now, if you go to Jerusalem today, I've been there a couple of times. Some of you in the room have been there as well. But when you go, and perhaps you've seen pictures of this or videos of this, uh, you ever gone to the Western Wall, also known as the Wailing Wall? Is there weeping in the city of Jerusalem today? Oh man, it is awkward. Like, I mean, if you walk up, it is like, like they're very expressive culture over there. And so it's not like a little tear, you know what I'm saying, that they're drying off their cheek. They are wailing. They're beating themselves. They're, they're sma you know, trying to uh, beat the rock. They're, they're opening you know, the, the scriptures and weeping and, and, and you know, saturating the pages with tears. I mean, it is dramatic. Is there weeping today? Yeah. Why are they weeping? Because they're still considered, they consider themselves uh, as, as not a well, really an occupied territory. They don't have access to the Temple Mount proper. The Jewish people don't. Uh, the, and, and as a result of that, they feel like, hey, we are not really where we need to be. 
and they're, they're weeping and they're wailing for God to return, for God to set up the kingdom that he's promised. And it's a very dramatic scene. But, Isaiah says, there is coming a day when that uh, weeping will be removed, that there will be nothing but joy, so much so that it says in verse 17, the former shall not be remembered nor come into mind. The good will be so good that you have a hard time remembering the bad. That's the point. So this sort of joy is how he starts off. This is what the kingdom will be like. Joy, peace, prosperity. However, he also says in verse 20, which is what highlights us to the reality, as I mentioned before, that we're talking here about the millennial kingdom before what you and I call the eternal state, which is described in Revelation 21. Because verse 20 highlights that there will still be death. Though death will still be present in this kingdom, lifespans will be extended according to verse 20. In fact, in the restoration, there will no more be abortion, stillbirths, or infanticide. Rather, it says the youngest will die at 100 years old. And if you die at 100 years old, you will actually, and this is brought out better in other translations, King James, New King James, uh, is, is, this is a, is a tough verse to translate, but what the end of verse 20 is getting at when it says that for a child should die 100 years, but the sinner being 100 years old should be accursed, the idea is that only people who will die before reaching 100, those will be considered accursed by God or judged by God because of their rebellion. In other words, here's some examples of other translations that help get at the core idea of what that verse is getting at. But for instance, it's describing that no one will die before the age of 100. Anyone who fails to reach the age of 100 will be considered cursed. That's the net translation. You've got NASB, Holman Christian Standard, uh, have similar translations that get that idea across. And so what verse 20 is getting at is that there is a, there's still death in this eternal kingdom. Why? Well, not because of you know, abortion or infanticide or stillbirths. Rather, the youngest will die at 100, but those who die before, it will because be because they're accursed by God. In other words, couple this with what we've already learned about the kingdom back in chapters 2, 4, and 11. The kingdom is described as that Davidic descendant, we know him as Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, he will rule and reign on the earth. But it says he will rule, and Psalm 2 says, with a rod of iron, or he will rule in the midst of the nations, uh, Isaiah says in 2, 4, 11. And so the idea is that he will be present ruling and reigning, but will there still be sinners on the earth that resist him? Yeah, it's still going to happen. It'll be a perfect government, but it will still have sinners resisting him. So will there be people put to death? Yeah, that seems to be what's being implied, is that we will have a perfect kingdom with a perfect king that cannot make a mistake and yet there will still be sinners who resist him. There will still be sinners who rebel against him. And so, but nonetheless, the, the general lifespan is going to be extended. So much so that it describes him in verse 22. At the end of verse 22, he says, As the days of a tree are the days of my people, my elect shall live long and enjoy the, you know, the work of their hands. Um, boy, help me out. It's, it's, it's in Utah, the bristlecone pine. It's the oldest tree in the world. You realize that there's still a bristlecone pine way up on the top of a, a mountain ridge. That is, its date it dates over a thousand years old. Uh, depending on you know, there's various 
dating systems. Some will even date it earlier than that. Bring it all the way back to, <clears throat> excuse me, timeline-wise, what we would consider the flood, that it started growing not long after the flood. Uh, some will date it that far back. But even conservative estimates still place the tree at 1,000 years old. Now, that's interesting, right? But the whole point is, trees live a long time, right? And so we, we have, that's the concept, is that when we have the millennium, when we have this restoration of creation the way it was intended to be in the beginning, then we're going to have long lifespans. And the only thing that will cut off one's life is their own rebellion against God's law. That's the idea. So he goes on, describing this restoration, verse 21 22, he describes how people will enjoy safety and produce of their vineyards. Let's reread that, verse 21, he says, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. In other words, that language of planting but another eating or building a house but another inhabiting, that's war language. We see it in a couple of different places. I don't have this on, your, uh, on the screen in your notes, but Deuteronomy 21, for instance, comes to mind where you have the guys who are given exemption from, from war. Remember that? The Israelis that were, that were given exemption from battle. What, what were those exemptions? Well, you have a few of them. One was, did you build a new house? but you haven't lived in it yet, well, then go home. Don't, you know, because if we lose and someone else, right, goes and lives in your house, that's a shame, right? That, that, he says, so if you just build a new house, go home, live in it. If you just got married, well, go home, enjoy your wife. He says, if you just planted a vineyard, but you haven't eaten the fruits thereof, go home and eat the fruit of your vineyard. It's interesting, isn't it? Flip that on its head. Those are the exemptions, right, in chapter 21. Chapter 28 of the book of Deuteronomy tells you that if the people of God, Israel, were disobedient to God, then he would bring judgments upon them, curses upon them. What are some of those curses? He says, you'll plant and another will eat your vineyard, you know, the, the produce of, of your work. You'll build a house and someone else will inhabit it, right? You'll marry a wife and someone else will take her. Why? Because you died in battle, right? That's the idea. Um, one more example of that. When God sends Israel into the nation of, of Canaan and the Canaanite tribes that are there in the land of Canaan during the conquest, he promises them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, you go in and you conquer these people. And guess what you get when you conquer them? You're going to have houses that you didn't build. You're going to have vineyards that you didn't plant. What's the idea there? Well, God's bringing judgment upon the Canaanites. They built the houses, they planted the vineyards, but then they're going to get wiped out by battle and the Israelites are going to enjoy that. Does that make sense? You got lots of places where you have references like this show up throughout the Old Testament. Uh, on the flip side, you have, for instance, the Solomonic Kingdom. First Kings chapter 4 describes the prosperity and the peace that was reigning underneath Solomon. And it says to epitomize the peace and prosperity of that time, we call it the golden age of Israeli history which was the United Monarchy, uh, really David and Solomon. <clears throat> but it says in 1 Kings chapter 4 that every man sat under his vine and under his fig tree. And the idea is one of peace and prosperity, because even the Old Testament law admits that to get a productive vineyard or fig tree, it takes multiple years. Right? You don't just plant a vine and then pull grapes off it next year. 
it needs cultivated. It, it will often take two to three seasons before that becomes a productive plant. And so in order to enjoy the fruits of your labor, you need peace, uninterrupted work for several years. That's the point. But when every man, it says, in Solomon's kingdom, which by the way, Isaiah uses that same imagery to describe the coming millennial kingdom. Every man. We're not just talking about the wealthy. We're not just talking about the top 1%. Everyone will enjoy their own vineyard. He says, you will have peace and prosperity. And that's the idea that's, that's getting uh, you know, referenced here in verse 20 and 20, 21 and 22. So what's next? Well, he describes in verse 23 and 4 that God's blessings will be on their work and families, and he will speedily answer their prayers while they're still speaking them. In other words, while the prayer is even in their mouth. Look again at verse 23. He says, They shall not labor in vain nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. And again, this is a description of uh, kind of what we already talked about with the, the, the labor in vain is a reference to you know, planting or building a house and someone else enjoying it. He says, you're not going to labor in vain. And not just that, but many believe, side note, that uh, it, it includes nat- natural disasters. All right? In other words, the new restoration is going to be a flashback to the old original creation. And the idea is that when did dramatic weather patterns begin, according to the Bible? When did we get the idea of short growing seasons because it freezes on both ends? Does anyone live in Nevada? <laughs> have you experienced that before? Doggone it, I have. All right, but short growing seasons, uh, polarized caps, you know, 75% water, salt water, that you can't drink, uh, uninhabitable places on the earth, deserts, etc. That's not the way God originally created. Read Genesis chapters 1 and 2. But the, uh, the dramatic weather patterns, when did that start? That was the flood, right? That's Genesis 7. Uh, it's easy to remember, 7-11. In Genesis 7-11, it describes how God opened the windows of heaven and he broke up, right, the, the waters of the deep. And we have this dramatic change on the face of the earth. And it then, I mean, he, he not only floods the earth, right, raining 40 days, 40 nights, etc., But then after that, he gives a promise to Noah that he will standardize the seasons in order to never again flood the earth. And that's, uh, you know, the end of chapter 8, when they they get off the boat. And God says that there'll be summer and winter and seed time and harvest. That God's going to, you know, bring the seasons and he's going to bring some regularity so that he doesn't again destroy the earth through a flood. But... Even in the, the regular system of seasons, do we still have extreme weather? Do we have hurricanes that wipe out whole societies, right? Tsunamis. Do we have earthquakes? Yeah. And in fact, we'll, we'll, we'll see, uh, just to connect that thought, what does Jesus say the earth will be like in the birth pangs of sorrow right before the second coming of Christ? He describes it as earthquakes and wars and famines and difficulties. And you think about what the earth is going to look like. What is civilization going to look like when Jesus shows back up? Right? The whole idea is, I mean, there's not going to be crops 
left. Fresh water is going to be down to a minimum. It's going to be disaster everywhere you look. He describes earthquakes that are so severe, he says that the world has never seen that kind of earthquake. And we've seen some whoppers that flatten whole societies. But when we consider, when we read what's going to happen before Jesus comes back, and then, and he calls those earth pains. It's like, you know, the, the, the onset of those early contractions that then get worse and worse and closer together and longer duration until what happens? Birth. And then he says, when the birth happens, the joy is so great that you forget the sorrow. Right? And I've shared that with you before. We've had six kids. And I'm amazed at the fact that if it was up to me to bear children, you know what I'm saying? Right? That's the joke, right? <laughs> Becca has a baby and she says, oh, she's holding the little thing. Oh, let's have another one. Come on. Do you not remember what we just went through, right? What you went through? But anyways, it's true. She forgets the sorrow for the joy. Well, that's what Jesus says it'll be like. The sorrow will be bad. He says, but then Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes back and he sets it all up, the perfect kingdom, peace, prosperity, etc. He says, it'll be so good that you won't even remember the bad. It'll be such blessedness that you won't even remember the bad. And that's what he's here describing. And he goes on, to, again, the whole idea of bringing forth, you're not going to bring forth for trouble, probably a reference to childbirth, where you're going to bring a child into the world, but not to trouble. I don't know how many times I've heard that in, in the recent past Right? People, and I mean, rightfully so, but we think, man, what is the next generation going to face? What is our country going to look like in 10, 20, 30 years? Are we even going to be here? Right? I mean, we got all these questions, and we're, we're, we're worried about the next generation. But Isaiah says, when Jesus comes back, you don't have to worry about that. It's going to be peace from there forward. So much so that he says, uh, verse 24, that it shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they're yet speaking, I will hear. He says, there's going to be such a closeness. Because again, we're going to see God is going to resume presence on earth with his people. Remember, that was discussed in chapter 60 uh, through 62. Back in chapter 2, 4, 11 of the book of Isaiah, it describes the presence of God on earth. The glory cloud, once again, taking up residence in the city of Jerusalem the messianic king ruling and reigning. But the idea is that you'll have such closeness and accessibility to the, to the Lord of hosts, the king of kings. He says, he'll answer your prayers while you're uttering them, while they're yet in your mouth. I love that. Because how many times do we pray now and the answer is, wait, silence. God doesn't answer right away. Rather, how many parables did Jesus give us about prayer. Consider Luke 18, other places where he describes this reality that we ought learn to pray and not to faint. Why? Well, because God's testing our faith and he doesn't answer prayer right away. Why? Well, there's reasons for that because if God answered prayer right away, right now, then we would treat him like a vending machine. You know what I'm saying? And rather he wants, what, what is it that pleases God? It's impossible to please him without it. Faith. That's what Hebrews 11 says. So why does God delay in answering prayer? 
Or why does God delay even in bringing judgment or bringing blessing in someone's life? Why does God delay? Because it's a built-in mechanism to test our faith, to mature our faith, to make us learn to believe what God says, even if we don't see immediate results. I don't know how many times I'm telling my kids, you know, they, they say, well, hey, what, when are we going to do this? When are we going to do this? Or what's going to happen? You know, uh, there's a number of scenarios where they're always asking questions. And I say, guys, it's going to be this way. Just trust me. Right? They've never seen it. They have, they've never experienced it. But I'm like, guys, just trust me. I, I know what's going to happen. And that's, that's what we need to learn is to say, okay, God, God knows what he's doing. So he delays. But in the millennium where we're going to have this perfect restored relationship, we are going to be glorified. We're going to see this, this wonderful closeness in a relationship. He says that he'll speedily answer our prayers even before we finish uttering them. Wow, what a description. But then, verse 25, and I want to spend a few more minutes on this because I think it's so interesting. But verse 25 describes how wild animals will lose their ferocity. We saw this back in chapter 11, Isaiah 11, 6 through 8. Hosea chapter 2, verse 18 will say the same thing. And so God will bring wild animals to the end of their ferocity. Rather, harmony and safety will prevail under God's good hand. Now recall with me that verse 25 is taken almost entirely from Isaiah 11, verses 6 to 9. It's a repeat. It's, a, it's almost a verbatim quote from what God already said back in chapter 11 of the same book, Isaiah chapter 11. But this reminds us that these blessings are going to come only through the Messiah. Because Isaiah 11 begins with what? Well, for, if you don't remember, let me just read a couple of verses, the beginning of Isaiah 11. But it's describing the stem of Jesse. Remember this? It's a reference to the Messiah. Isaiah 11, 1, he says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch. Remember the branch prophecies? They're messianic prophecies. There's about four or five of them that span the prophetic books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah. But he says, A branch will grow out of his roots, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding and the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, nor reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness. He will judge the poor. He will reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. Right, there's the idea. Will there still be people rebelling against the perfect king? Yes, but he will make a perfect verdict. How many, I just read a headline like, I think last night. How many people get released from prison after like four decades, you know, or something like dramatic because new DNA evidence came out and proved that they were actually innocent and they were sitting in jail for decades? That's not going to happen. Not with Jesus. We're going to have perfect judicial system. Wow, can you imagine that? <laughs> I have a hard time imagining that, honestly, from personal experience. Or, you know, just, just our, our contemporary experience. But he says, with total righteousness, he will judge. He will smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. And the righteousness will be the girdle of his loins, faithfulness, the girdle of his reins. Perfect justice, which will bring what? Perfect peace. That's verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Everyone will know God, which is interesting, uh, not to get lost in this, but... Some historians claim 
that a society will not become humanitarian in the sense of actually evidencing compassion until at least 20% of the population is Christian. I think that's interesting. Where does compassion come from? Christianity. We can look at the history of the world. It's the Christian worldview that is what brings about compassion and reform in the godly sense to a society. What would it be like if, like, I mean, think of percentages. I mean, I don't know how many will enter the kingdom and be born, you know, and how many sinners will be born. But you think of the glorified saints in that society. I don't know. Can we say 90%, 80, 90%, even at the end of a thousand years, are genuine believers? Can you imagine that? What would a society be like if everyone was, they knew God? And not just knew God, but they loved God and they were glorified to emulate God in all of our actions and our choices. We would have utopia, right? You all remember the word utopia it comes from Greek, utopos. It means no place. That's what it means. So in Greek society, that's why they called it a utopia because it was that perfect world. Where does the perfect world exist? It's utopia. It doesn't exist. Right? That's, what the, that's why the Greeks called utopia utopia. It's a Greek word. It means no place. But the reality is it's coming. Right? That's the whole idea of the Bible. There will be utopia. And it's only when Jesus comes back. All right? So go back to Isaiah 65, verse 25. Notice it's, it's, it's pretty much a repetition of what we just read. It's kind of a condensed version. But it's basically repeating what we just read in Isaiah 11, verse 6 to 9. And it's interesting, but he says, he adds here a new, a new detail, a spin on, on it, that the dust shall be the serpent's meat. In other words, notice again that verse 25, because it's taken almost entirely from uh, chapter 11, it's making that connection that the blessings, these blessings that Isaiah are here describing, will come only through the Messiah. Yet on the other hand, the dust will be the serpent's food. That is a clear allusion to Genesis 3.14. Right, the curse narrative. And this illusion is made most likely to remind us that the overthrow of Satan, the great serpent of Revelation 20 verse 2, describes right when Jesus comes back, what is it? one of the, the first things he does? When he destroys his enemies, then he binds that dragon. And he binds the, uh, the beast and the false prophet. And he throws them into the pit. And when that happens, now... Right? We can have peace reign. And I think it's interesting, but again, the, the, the result of that uh, defeat of Satan is what will bring this perfect peace. And it will come at the hands of the woman's offspring, according to Genesis 3 and verse 15. Right? So that verse is, is a clear flashback, trying to bring us back to the initial promise, the proto-evangelium, the first declaration of the gospel that the seed of the woman will come to defeat the seed of the serpent. That's, again, Genesis 3, verse 15. But I want to camp on this concept of what I call unwild animals for just a few more minutes. All right, I've only got a couple minutes left before the end of the hour. But I, I explored this concept, uh, oh boy, it was years back when we were in our Genesis series. That was like my first series that I taught when I, when I came here um, you know, on Wednesday nights. And we explored this concept a little bit when we were studying the book of Genesis. And we came to this passage here in Isaiah 65 to describe uh, the restoration. And, and I find this fascinating because this is kind of a little subplot, you know, sub-theme 
that goes through the scripture that kind of helps summarize the idea of restoration, the reversal of the curse, those ideas, right? It's kind of fun. But let me uh, summarize this for you. Both the original creation and the new creation picture animals in total harmony with mankind as well as one another. The plain reading, for instance, of Genesis chapter 2 suggests Adam was looking for a fit companion among the animals when they came before him, willingly. Remember, it says they were coming before him one by one, and he was naming the animals. And the idea is that he was even looking for a fit companion, which, of course, he didn't find, which is why God created woman, right? And there's that's Genesis chapter 2. But nonetheless, it shows an interesting relationship that Adam had originally with the animals that does not exist today. The extent of man's relation to the animals in the beginning is unknown. Yet, Genesis chapter 1 seems to indicate that uh, beasts would cooperate beneath man to occupy and subdue the earth. In other words, if you read the cultural mandate, where uh, we call it the cultural mandate, where it's, it's the, the, man, the mandate for man and woman to go and you know, produce offspring and fill the earth and subdue the earth, and God gives them the authority to do so, he says, because I've placed under your hand all the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, the fish of the sea. Right? In other words, not only in the sense that God created them and man is at the pinnacle of creation, but it may even suggest that God's original design was for man to rule, but even the beast to cooperate in the task of subduing the earth. Now, when you think about that, has that happened through history? Well, yes. Not necessarily to the same degree of what you might call cooperation. But what's one of the greatest advancements, technologically speaking, that advanced history? Well, how about when we harness the use of the horse? Or the mule or whatever. Fill in the blank. Right? The idea is when man and beast operate and cooperate together, incredible things have been accomplished. It's amazing. We could get lost in, right? I mean, the whole study of radar, right? Studying dolphins. I mean, we could get lost in this. Right? Even today, some of the, the most modern advances, advancements in technology, guess what they're doing? They're studying animals. They're studying frogs and why a frog or, or a toad can change colors or glow in the dark or you know, they can see you know, this ver- you know, varying animals that have various genetic traits. We study them and we try and reproduce. Some of our armor, you realize that? Military, modern military armor was produced by studying animals and how their scales fit together. And they're like, hey, that works. I mean, it's amazing how when you think about the cooperation between man and beast. But though originally both man and beast ate only plants, there was no food chain rivalry that existed. But then the curse enters in Genesis chapter 3. The flood occurs, chapter 6 through 9, and the relationship drastically changed. According to Genesis 9 and verse 2, we now have a fear that is placed between men and animals, where animals will innately fear humans, and vice versa to a certain degree, right? Particularly snakes. <laughs> I wonder why. No. But we have a fear. There's a lack of unity, harmony, and cooperation between the animal kingdom and humanity that doesn't seem to have been there originally in Revelation or in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And all of this is the result of Genesis 3, the entrance of sin, the corruption of the perfect relationships. And when you think about it, every relationship, I think we were talking about this a while back, every relationship in the curse is affected. Man and woman, 
have a difficult relationship because of the curse. Women and children have a difficult relationship because of the curse. Man and the earth, when you try to grow crops and you grow weeds instead, right? That was because of the curse. Man and beast, because of the curse. You see what I'm saying? Every relationship devolved from the way it was intended to be in the beginning. So much so, the beasts became wild killers. And at times, they were even used by God as instruments of judgment upon mankind. For instance, we won't go there for a second time, but those are the curse passages. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy chapter 28, but 32 verse 24 mentions it as well, where God says, if you, Israel, are going to be disobedient before me, he says, I will bring in beasts that will consume you. Does that happen? Yes. 2 Kings 17 is the record of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, rebellious against God. God brings Assyria in to conquer them, to scatter them. And so there are still, there's, there's, there's pagans that come in to, to uh, populate the land, and then they intermingle, becoming the Samaritans. Remember all that? But the idea is there's a severe depopulation in the land of Israel. So much so that they, it, it says in 2 Kings 17, verse 25, that what happened is they started running into trouble. Wild beasts were creeping in and killing people. Now, again... We, we've got lots of examples, right, in, in modernity where that happens. We, we, you know, we've seen multiple examples, shark buys, shark, shark attacks, lion attacks, bear attacks, right? We could go on and on. But God says, and it, in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it was carried out in 2 Kings, uh, and as well as 1 Kings 13, Ezekiel 5 and 14 are also just other examples of that taking place. But God said, I will use the animals at times to be a judgment upon humanity because of their wickedness. And so we see that happening throughout Israeli history. But it's interesting here, Isaiah declares that this broken relationship between man and beast will be restored. It will be restored. Now, it is debated whether Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65 refer only to the millennial kingdom or also to the eternal state. I think I get this from Randy Alcorn. But he says this, that both the flood in Genesis 6 through 9 and the millennium set a precedence for preserving animal life in the renewed earth. Right? The whole idea of the ark building an ark so that the animals might be preserved. He uses that as an argument to say, hey, arguably, as he says here, the renewed earth is arguably going to be like the first earth of Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we see evidence of this, Jonah 4, 11, Exodus 20, 10, Proverbs 12, uh, 10, Psalm 104, are all places that evidence God's love and concern for animal life and how we ought reflect that. And that, in other words, he's arguing that it's, it's uh, well, let me take it a step further. Psalm 148, Job 40 and 41, many other passages, evidence that the presence of animals serves to praise God as their creator. Even the sacrificial system, indirectly, evidences the value of animal life and that it serves to postpone judgment on human life. Alcorn goes on to make the observation, Revelation 19, 2 Kings 2, 6, etc., all reference heavenly horses. Right? When Jesus descends from heaven, what's he riding? A white horse. Revelation 4 and 5, Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, describe cherubim as having four faces, three of which come from the animal kingdom. But it's actually probably the other way around. More likely, the cherubim served as some sort of heavenly prototype for what the earth's creatures would look like. In other words, 
it's, it's very probable that in the end, we will indeed have animals in the eternal state. Romans 8, verse 18 to 23, implies that the current creation not only grows beneath sin, but also anticipates redemption, of which it will be a part. Now, I have no idea of answering this, but I've gotten this question a ton. And Randy Alcorn, I get this from him, his book on heaven, interesting read. But Randy Alcorn suggests that because there is this idea of redemption and restoration, does this include animals, even previously existent ones? I always get this question from little kids. Is my doggy going to be in heaven? You know what I'm saying? And like, oh, doggone it. I don't know, right? I mean, it's like, I, I can't prove that one way or the other. But it's interesting how Alcorn points this out that he says, hey, will there be animals in the, in the new heavens and new earth? Yeah, it's pretty definitive, it seems. Lots of biblical evidence that suggests that. He says, but if, if Romans 8 is correct, that there's a restoration and the whole idea of you and I undergoing a resurrection, he says, will that be true of the animals? I have no idea. But is there hope for that? Maybe, right? So I always tell my, you know, the kids that ask, hey, is my cat going to be in heaven? How about my goldfish? And I say, I don't know, but maybe. We'll see when we get there, okay? And then I just flip it on. Are you going to heaven, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's turn it into evangelism, you know what I'm saying? Um, but it is funny, it, you know, and, and Alcorn has some fun with that in his book. But he suggests, hey, it's a possibility. But note, however, let's, and, and then we've got to summarize and be done. But note, however, that in verse 25, while all this restoration is taking place, there's one animal who will not be restored. And what's that? The serpent. The mosquito. <laughs> so maybe there's two, right? <laughs> the serpent and the mosquito, maybe. I'm with you. Right, you remember that old joke? Like, why did Noah let them on the ark? Right? It's like as they're buzzing over, it's just like, all right, let's just call it good for the rest of history. You're welcome. No, you know, like, Noah, you could have really helped us out there. Anyways. But no, it's, you're right. Is, is we have this picture of, in, in, in uh, Isaiah 65, 25, that all these animals will be unwild, right? It's the reversal of the curse. With one exception, and that seems to be the serpent. Because here it says the dust will be the serpent's meat. Now, again, if you go back to Genesis chapter 3, the whole idea of the dust being the serpent's meat is actually the result of the curse. Remember that? And so it says, because God curses the serpent and says, well, from now on you will crawl you know, on your belly and dust will be your meat. And we don't know this for sure. Some think that maybe serpents originally had legs. Uh, we don't know. Maybe they, you know, were more upright and they slithered more that way. I don't know. But it was apparently an evidence of the curse that they would eat dust. And that is not going to be restored. In other words, the serpent may well exist on through eternity as a continual reminder of our foe that has been defeated, if that makes sense. It'll serve as a memorial. So I think it's interesting. And we could go on and on about various memorials that seem to exist uh, throughout eternity, being, of course, most conspicuously the Lord Jesus himself, right? Which is a memorial of the good that he has done. The scars, he will, uh, evidence suggests from the scripture that he will bear those scars through eternity. Why? as a memorial, so that we would never forget what he's done for us. And so that's an interesting thought, but it does seem that, that you know, the scriptures 
you know, verify that concept, that idea of memorials even on into eternity. All right, I'm out of time, but next time we're going to come back and look at chapter 66, and it may take us uh, a week, maybe two, to get through that. Then we'll summarize our study of the book of Isaiah. Like I said, we're only a couple of weeks away uh, from coming to the conclusion of uh, this marvelous book. All right, so thanks for hanging in there. Uh, It's been a good study. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the time this morning. We are so eager to hear from you and your word. We thank you for the book of Isaiah and what we studied in this last hour and the blessing and encouragement it is to us to consider, to contemplate what it is that you will do, uh, Lord, to renew and restore the earth at the second coming of the Lord Jesus. We pray that each of us will be able to answer the question that we posed a few weeks back from Matthew chapter seven, that whether or not we are believers in Christ, whether we know him and will be therefore admitted entrance into this kingdom which is merely this first stage of eternity, this perfect existence, this perfect restoration between us and God, us and creation, us and the animals, etc. That, Lord, we will live the way it was designed to be, intended to be in the beginning. Oh, God, help us to be sure that we're going there, to be sure that our sins are forgiven, and long for that day, To, in the meantime, tell other people about it, to be evangelistic so that others might also hear the good news, how they too can have their sins forgiven, that they too can have eternal life, that they too can participate and partake of these blessed promises. So Lord, we commit this day to you. We pray your blessing on the next service and the next couple of weeks as we finish our examination of the book of Isaiah. Might you magnify yourself with all that is said and done in Jesus' name. Amen.